Thank you, Matt. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. So we are so excited. We're actually in a Christmas series that we're calling Wonder. And the reason we called this series this is because this is an opportunity in a season where we all need to gather at the cross and, uh, uh, you know, around uh, the crib of Jesus and just in awe and wonder together. And so what we're doing in the middle of this series is we're focusing on a 2,700-year-old prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And it's just an amazing promise. We're zeroing in each week on a different name. But here's what this prophecy says. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so each week we're breaking down this promise. We're looking at a different name for our Jesus. So last week we looked at uh, Wonderful Counselor. And we ask the question over and over again, what if the teaching of Jesus is meant to be viewed and seen as wonderful counsel? And today we're going to look at Jesus as mighty God, and we're going to unpack some of the implications of that. Now, one of the things that we often miss when we read the first four books of the New Testament, uh, some people call those the Gospels, is how versed these writers were in the Old Testament. Uh, It was their love. Um, It was the goal of every young Jewish boy to know Torah, to love Torah, and to obey Torah. And every single one of the gospel writers had this aspiration. And today, I want to look at one story in particular that, that demonstrates that Jesus was really mighty God. So we're going to get into the boat and we're going to learn along with Jesus' disciples just how powerful he is. In fact, we're going to say along with the disciples, who is this that even the wind and the waves would obey him, right? Now, uh, Matt just read this story, so uh, we know some of the facts, right? Uh, Jesus is in a boat. He's sleeping on the boat. A terrible storm blows in. Uh, The NIV calls it a furious squall. Here's what we know. We know that these were all experienced fishermen. They were used to storms blowing in, but this storm was unique. It was special. It was unlike anything they'd ever seen, so much so that the boat is being overwhelmed. The waves, the wind and the waves are actually higher than the boat, and they're being overwhelmed and in the middle of the storm Jesus is asleep right when they need him the most right I mean this strikes fear in the hearts of his disciples so they wake Jesus up and they ask him a question and it's a question that all of us in this room have asked God at one time or another and it was this hey don't you care I mean if we drown Now, it's important that we understand that what caused them to come apart in this story wasn't just the storm, but it was that the storm caused them to doubt about whether Jesus really cared for them or not. And I wonder what storms have blown into your life in 2020 that have caused you to worry or wonder about whether God really uh, 
you know, cares or not. And here's what's so fascinating to me about this story. Before Jesus calms the storm, they are terrified of this storm. But after Jesus calms the storm, they're even more terrified. Now, why were they more terrified in the calm after the storm than they were in the storm? Here's why. Because they were beginning to understand that Jesus was just as unmanageable as the storm itself. In other words, the storm had immense power that was beyond their control, but Jesus had even more power, and they knew they couldn't control him either. I mean, he was asleep for crying out loud when they needed him the most. And the reality about our Jesus is he doesn't do things according to my plan or in a way that always makes the best sense to me. And that, my friends, is absolutely terrifying. Because we're more comfortable if we put some limits on Jesus, right? And so uh, Jesus doesn't here just rebuke the storm. He doesn't just say, peace be still to the storm. And then we're told a little later in the story, there's just dead calm. The wind completely ceases, the waves completely cease, and it's just uh, dead calm. So he rebukes the storm, but he also sends a rebuke to his disciples, right? He says, look, why are you so afraid? Don't you, do you still have no faith? Now, does this rebuke seem a little unreasonable to some of you? It does to me, especially at first glance, right? Because if we were in the boat with those disciples, we would have been scared too. I mean, can you imagine what his disciples were thinking? They were saying, look, well, we were afraid, Jesus, because we thought we were going to drown. We were afraid because we doubted your care and your concern. We were afraid you didn't love us because if you loved us, you wouldn't be sleeping in the stern of the boat while the waves were overwhelming us and the boat. And see, this is precisely why Jesus asks them about their faith. He is challenging them, but he's not challenging them in the way that we often think. He, here's what he's saying. So important that we get this. He is saying, your premise about me is all wrong. I do allow people that I love to go through storms. But it is in the storm that you have to trust me the most. So here are the facts of the story, and let's see if any of us can relate to any of this. Maybe as a storm's blown into your life in 2020, maybe there's a part of this that you can latch on to and where you can identify with the disciples and what they were going through. So here's what we know. First, there was a storm. Secondly, Jesus was asleep in the boat, right? They were about to sink. So they questioned God's care, and then they completely came apart. 
So has there been a storm that's blown into your life in 2020 that's caused you to question God's care and completely fall apart? I mean, is there any part of this story that you can relate to? So the young man that you see standing um, here to the right of our stage is actually my oldest son. His name is Aaron. He's in for, um, uh, for a wedding this weekend. And um, I'm going to let him introduce himself. But this is a young man that, like some of you and like some of and me and, and his mom, you know, he's been through some storms um, this year. And I'll let him elaborate a little bit more about that. So, hey, would you guys show him some love? Just make him feel loved to be here. Yeah, Dad, so uh, before I get sharing this morning, you know, when were you going to, you know, inform the congregation of the, of the big news? I, I got nothing. So, so yeah, folks, so uh, it's, it's great you could be here today because let me tell you, um, you are here to bring in a new, a new era at SCC, you know. My dad, he's, uh, he's not getting any younger, right? And so, uh, you know, today we are out with the old, in with the new, out with senior pastor Brad Davis, in with senior pastor Aaron Davis. You guys can tell that he's certainly the most humble of all my children. I get that from my mom. Yeah, and probably he is the most confused as well. But anyway, go ahead, son. Yeah, um, so allow me to introduce myself a little bit more. Um, you know, my name is Aaron, and I am currently residing in Shreveport, Louisiana for work. Uh, I am a meteorologist with the National Weather Service down there in Shreveport. And um, when we talk about weathering the storms and storms in our life, um, 2020 for me has been literally and figuratively um, weathering the storms, being a meteorologist. Um, through May of this year, our area, you know, when you think active weather, you probably think, you know, Texas, Oklahoma. Um, but for the first half of the year, our office led the nation in um, weather activity. Uh, we didn't get a break, and we didn't get a break throughout the year. We're still top five as far as active weather goes. Um, so you, you, you throw that in um, for me, that, that phys physical storm, um, and having to try to actively go into work, which is an insanely stressful work environment, um, given the active weather, um, all the projects I've taken on the office, you know, that's, it's just a stressful work environment. Um, and to top it all off, outside of work, to, to, to start this year off, I started dealing with some health, health issues. Um, you know, continuously going to the doctor to try to figure out what's going on, and those kept getting magnified. My health issues kept getting worse. I started developing mental health issues, tons of anxiety, um, and work was not helping with that, right? Just a super stressful work environment. Um, and the, the cherry on top, right, was the pandemic. Um, I was just starting to get plugged in with a great church down there, great church environment, very friendly people, um, and I was starting to get introduced to people. They had brought on just a brand new great pastor down there, um, and then that got cut off because for a period of time, uh, Louisiana was a hotspot for the coronavirus, so they closed everything down, and they wouldn't let um, the churches come in to gather um, for coronavirus reasons. So all of my outlets got taken away. So you have a high-impact, high-stress work environment, um, health and mental health issues, and then just being 12 hours away from anybody, 
right? I could still call my parents and tell them what was going on in my life and um, ask them for advice, but it, it was isolation. So isolated, high stress, health and mental health issues. Um, that's a recipe for disaster, right? That those doors at that point are opened up for Satan to come into your life and just wreak havoc. And I recognized that very early on. But the problem was, you know, um, the isolation. Like, what, what do you do to combat that when all of your outlets are taken away? And um, the, the church that you were starting to call home, you couldn't fall back on your church family. Um, I fell back on this. Uh, there were a lot of nights uh, when I was just, like, really down or there was a particularly stressful day at work, and I just wanted to come home and put my head through the wall, right? Like, this, this is just, this is atrocious. And I would say, okay, let's see what God has to tell me about this today. And there were a lot of times when I would um, just sit down, breathe, and say a quick prayer. And say, okay, God, what do you want me to take away today? And I would just open the Bible and read. And a lot of times, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a good passage that I would read, but it wasn't really applicable. And so I would rack, rack my head going, okay, how is this, how is this applicable? But then there are other times when it was like someone quite literally just threw the Bible at my face. And um, there's a New and Old Testament sitting on my feet, and I've got a black eye because someone just hit me so hard with it. Um, and there's one passage today that I want to share with you guys when we talk about Jesus being the almighty God and weathering the storms. Um, because I, when, when I read this, I couldn't highlight it fast enough. And I, I almost burned, burned a hole through my paper highlighting it. I was highlighting it so fast. Um, so if you guys, uh, and if you don't have a Bible or anything, it'll be on the screen behind me here. It's going to be 2 Corinthians. Let me open my Bible real quick. So it is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the verses we are going to be taking a look at today are 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, and in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I took that to heart because, you know, I, I just, work was beating me down, life was beating me down. Um, but, but what I realized in all this is that God, Jesus is the Almighty God, and that Jesus will be there with me to help me weather the storm. It doesn't matter if it's a literal storm or, um, a figurative storm with my, with my health and everything else I had going on. Um, it's just all the time I, I, I knew reading through this that um, I will get through my storm by falling back on Jesus. Thanks so much. Would you guys again just show Aaron some love? Hey, son. Proud of you, man. Proud. So I just wonder for you, you know, what storm would you identify that blew into your life in 2020 where you were most tempted to think like Aaron did, you know, man, I, I've got to go through this alone. And, you know, what do you need to do to be reminded 
that we never have to go through any storm alone. Sure, it's absolutely true that Jesus allows people that he love, loves to go through storms. But the promise of Scripture isn't that we'll be able to escape storms. It's that he will be with us in the storm. And he is the mighty God. And so I just love, Aaron, the way God spoke to you through that passage. God used that same passage in my life as well. So what I want to do now is I want to go back to Mark 4, uh, the story of Jesus calming the storm that we just looked at. And there's something incredibly amazing about this story. You know, Mark has told this story in a way that is parallel, almost identical to another story that's found in the Old Testament. Remember, th these writers knew their Old Testament backward and forward, and it's the Old Testament story of Jonah. So both Jesus, so let's look at some of the similarities. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both of those boats are overwhelmed by a storm, right? The descriptions of the storms are almost identical in both stories. Uh, in each of the stories, both Jonah and Jesus are each asleep. And in both stories, experienced sailors, sailors that are accustomed to storms blowing in, right, um, uh, wake them both up. And, in, and they say this, we're going to die. We're going to die. And in both stories, there's a miraculous intervention and the sea goes dead calm, right? And also, in both stories, these experienced sailors become even more terrified uh, in the calm after the storm than they were in the storm. Two identical stories with one difference. See, in the middle of Jonah's storm, he essentially says to the sailors, there's only one way for you to live. You have to throw me overboard. You have to kill me. In order for you to live, I have to die. So they, they do. They throw Jonah overboard. They sacrifice him so that they can all live. Now that doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? Because if you know the rest of Jesus' story, you know that that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. That he will sacrifice himself, he will throw himself overboard into the sea of sin, right? So that you and I could live and be saved. In fact, Jesus said elsewhere, he said this in the book of Matthew, he said that he was greater than Jonah and that he was the true Jonah. Well, what did he mean by that? He meant this, someday... I am going to calm all storms. I am going to still all waves. I am going to destroy destruction. And I am going to break brokenness. I will even kill death forever. And if you know the rest of his story, you know that he did that by willingly offering himself, just like Jonah, to be thrown into the ultimate storm. 
to be tossed into the waves of sin and death. And Jesus was thrown into the only storm that could actually overwhelm every one of us in this room and sink us forever. And that storm, the storm that Jesus was thrown into, wasn't calmed before it swept him away. And if the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never again look at God and say to him, do you care? Do you even care? Because you will know that he cares. And if you know that he did not abandon you to that ultimate storm, what would ever make you think that he would abandon you in the smaller storms of life that you and I have to endure today? And we need to be crystal clear that it is precisely because Jesus is mighty God that allows him to make any kind of promise of grace and mercy. Because if he is not mighty God, then sin is bigger than him, death is stronger than him, and there is no such thing as grace and salvation. So I would just say this. Don't look for your salvation anywhere, any place other than the mighty God. You know, we're, we're basing this whole series on a prophecy that we read a little bit earlier from Isaiah chapter 9, right? And front and center, right in the middle of this prophecy, is a king that was ruling Israel in that day. His name was King Ahaz. And Isaiah chapters 7 through 11 are a warning to King Ahaz. And essentially, the warning is this. The same thing I just said to you. Look, don't trust in anything other than mighty God. And we talked a little bit last week about King Ahaz, but the thing you need to know about him is he was exceptionally wicked and evil and self-focused. And I would argue that that's what the definition of evil is, is someone who's focused on themselves instead of of others. And so let me tell you just a little bit about what the Bible says about this king, King Ahaz. When King Ahaz met the king of Assyria in Damascus, and by the way, the king of Assyria, Assyria was the superpower of this day. So there was no kingdom, there was no nothing like Assyria. So when Ahaz met the king of Assyria, he was just starstruck. He was awestruck. I mean, he, he viewed this king as a rock star, right? And he wanted to be his friend. And when he met him there, he saw this king offer sacrifices on a pagan altar to the gods of um, Babylon and Assyria. And he was so taken, you know, he, he attributed this king's success to this altar, so what he did is he sent back to his priest, a man by the name of Uriah, and he asked him to make him an altar just like the one that the king of Assyria had so that he could make sacrifices, not to the Lord, not to mighty God, but to the gods of Assyria. And it gets even worse than that. I'll tell you what else Ahaz did to impress the king of Assyria to get on his good side. He shut the doors to the temple. 
He placed altars on all the street corners in Jerusalem and altars in all the high places, not altars to make sacrifices to the Lord, to mighty God. No, he did it so that all the citizens of Israel could worship the false gods in every city in Jerusalem. uh, not Judea, I just thought, in Judah. So simply put, you know what King Ahaz did? He refused to put his trust in mighty God. In his practicality and in his ambition, he felt it, was, it would be more strategic and better for him if he was in this alliance with the king of Assyria. And that desire, that compromise, set a series of dominoes off in his life that would not only negatively impact his life, but would negatively impact the nation of Israel for centuries. Not just decades, but centuries. See? See, in his ambition and practicality, he looked for salvation and success in places other than mighty God. And listen, folks, if he had believed for even a moment that Yahweh was mighty God, he would never have done any of those things. And here's what's so alarming to this story. Do you know that you and I actually, we all in this room sometimes behave like King Ahaz? We do exactly the same things that he did. And you go, well, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, here's how. Like Ahaz, we tend to look to God's who cannot save. Now, our gods don't have names like Zeus or Hermes or Baal, right? The gods we trust have different names. Names like money or power. Names like influence and status. Names like relationships and sex. Or how about opportunity and control? or self-medication see any number of things right and by looking to those things for our deliverance maybe I could translate that word deliverance into a more modern vernacular by looking to those things to satisfy the longings of our hearts by looking to those things for fulfillment by looking to those things to to ease the nagging emptiness that lives within every single one of us that we wake up to every single day, to give us a sense of purpose or identity or meaning to our lives, that's why we look to those things. When we look to those things, those lower G gods, to do that for us, it's as if we're looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, I doubt that you are the mighty God. I doubt that you can pull me out of the hole I'm in, so I'm going to run to alcohol or drugs to pull myself out of that hole. I doubt that you can meet my needs. I doubt that you can give me the identity that I need. And so I'm going to run to those other things, and I'm going to find all that I need there. I need this. You don't satisfy me, Jesus, so I need this, or I'm going to reach out for that. And when we look Jesus in the face and we tell him, you're not enough, that means we have lost sight of the fact that he is mighty God. It is one of his names. And so I think, um, uh, 
Here's how I think we reduce. I want to just give you some practical ways I think we reduce Jesus down so that he's not mighty God. Uh, so that we can control him. Remember we said back in Mark 4, what was so terrifying to the disciples was that Jesus had even more power than the storm, but they couldn't manage Jesus either. He wasn't behaving the way they expected him to behave. So they would have loved to have put limits on Jesus. They would have loved to have put him in a box. And I think we do the same thing. We create these caricatures of Jesus so that we don't have to see him as Jesus mighty God and I think these caricatures that we create are based on our needs on our desires and on our passions so what I'm telling you is I think we create caricatures of Jesus that flow out of our desires so let me give you some examples I think one of the ways we reduce Jesus down from mighty God is we create what some of us might call Jesus the life coach. Jesus the life coach. So, you know, he provides some daily inspiration to help motivate me, you know, to get through my day. And like every other pithy quote or statement that I've seen on social media, I can stop and like it. And if that works for me one day, great. But if I see something better a little bit later, I'll check and like that too. You know, I can keep scrolling and find something that works a little better for me. So we see Jesus as an inspirational life coach. Well, listen, folks, if Jesus is mighty God, he is far more than an inspirational life coach. Here's another one, Jesus the Lucky Charm. And I know that when I say Lucky Charm, some of you think of a box of cereal, right? But you know, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I mean, there are some of us, and we think, hey, if I have a cross around my neck, or, you know, I have a cross hanging on my rearview mirror, or I have a cross on my refrigerator, or on the back bumper, you know, of my car, then there's going to be smooth sailing. You know, my life is going to be easy street. And if I'm honest, that's what I really want from Jesus. I want him to give me a life of smooth sailing but that's not jesus mighty god right we've already seen that the jesus who calms the wind and the waves allows storms to blow in into the lives of people that he loves you know and and he even promised that he predicted that he said in this world you will have trouble if he were a weather forecaster, if he were a meteorologist with the National Weather Service, he would say there's a 100% chance that storms are going to blow into your life today and tomorrow. And tomorrow. So, you know, he predicted this, right? Uh, that storms are going to blow into our lives and that God will use every single one of them for his glory that God will be magnified and all that that his grace will be sufficient as Aaron said a little bit earlier but here's another way we try to limit or contain Jesus we'd like to think of him especially this time of year as Jesus clause Jesus clause so we make a list of what we want you know we make we we give him a shout out at Christmas time you know so we're good but here's a view about this view of Jesus right you know who's going to be disappointed when you view Jesus as Jesus Claus? You will be. Because, see, we've already said that Jesus is unmanageable. We've already said that Jesus doesn't uh, 
respond to us in the way that we always think that he should, right? So, uh, so you know, because that means, here's, so here's what that means. It means he's not going to deliver on your wish list every Christmas holiday season. It means that he's going, not going to give you everything that you want. He's not always going to say yes to you because he's mighty God and he's higher and bigger and mightier than you and he knows better than you. See? And so when he doesn't, when he doesn't give you everything on your wish list, you're going to look up to heaven and you're going to say, okay, God, hey, where were you? You know, why didn't you show up for me? I thought we were good. Hey, I attended Christmas Eve services at SCC. I thought I was on your good side. You were kind of obligated because I came to those services to kind of do something good for me, right? And you didn't come through, see? In other words, I came to you with my list. Why didn't you give me everything that I asked for? Friends, the reality is we live in a world where Jesus doesn't give anyone that he loves everything they ask for. He just doesn't. Because he's mighty God. See, here's the problem with all those caricatures and many more that we could come up with. If Jesus is mighty God, all of those caricatures pale in comparison to the reality of who he really is. When we settle for caricatures of Jesus, we always settle for less. Listen, mighty God, if it means anything, it means that Jesus is bigger than I think he is, and it means he's more involved in my life than I give him credit for. And so a lot of us want to pull down the mighty God into a term that we feel better about, into a place where we feel like, you know, we've got some handles on him, where we can contain him or limit him or control him or get him to do the things that we want him to do. And Mark, in Mark 4, in the story of the storm, he's already reminded us, that isn't mighty God Jesus. That isn't our Jesus. He can't be manipulated or coerced or controlled. And I want to talk about the why. Why do we create all those caricatures? Well, one is an attempt to control Jesus, but there's another reason as well, and, and that's this. Um, none of those caricatures require me to change. None of them require me to surrender, right? None of those caricatures call me to die to myself. None of them put me in a position where I'm, um, where I'm convicted by my own sin. And you know why? Because we think, you know, if, hey, if it's Jesus the life coach, you know, hey, well, I can take the things I like and just disregard the things Jesus says that make me uncomfortable. And I'll move on to something else and find a different life coach. See, in all these ways, it's a way of keeping Jesus at bay. Keeping Jesus at arm's length so that he doesn't get all up in our business. So that he doesn't get too close, right? But listen, friends, when we come face to face with the reality that Jesus is mighty God, that means he's not only worthy of our worship, it means he's also worthy of our surrender, in fact, if Jesus, uh, Jesus, well, never mind. I just lost my train of thought completely. And I was doing so good, didn't you think, until that very moment. 
But here's the last point I want to make. Because Jesus is mighty God, here's what that means. It means that he meets us in, in our greatest need. And I want to talk about that because my concern is that what you think your greatest need is, is not really your greatest need. See, our greatest need is that apart from Christ, we are, every one of us in the room, guilty of sin. In our hearts, in our will, in our minds, we're, we're willing to do whatever we need to do to be happy, right? And so if that means I have to cut some corners or, you know, take some ethical shortcuts, if it makes me happy, I'm willing to do that. That's what sin is. But listen, and I want to talk about how serious a thing sin is. Sin is not just a lapse in judgment, Sin is not, well, I wasn't thinking clearly. It's not, oh, I didn't have my morning cup of coffee, right? It's not, um, I mean, when we rightly understand it, when we think about it for what it really is, sin is actually treason against God. It's treason against God. Uh, against the God who created us and against the God who died for us, died for our sin. And let me say this, sin is the most serious, deadly, lethal thing that exists in our world. Everything about the world that you and I live in, uh, our world has been turned upside down by sin. This is why when you go to Minnesota, it's so freaking cold. You think cold was meant to exist in our world? I say absolutely not. It should never be that cold. In fact, when some of you may remember Daniel Stahl, when his wife Mary came up here, she had lived in Florida all of our life. She came to Indiana in the middle of winter, and she would just come up and go outside and go, this is not right. This is not how the world is supposed to be. I mean, she'd never felt anything like it, right? Here's my point. Everything in our world has been influenced and impacted by sin. And every one of you have been touched by sin and hurt and harmed by sin. Sin is the most lethal, deadly thing in our world and Jesus came to take that on he came not only to take it on but to take it away he did but you know what some of us do we minimize our sin we say things like well you know this really wasn't that serious or well I didn't really mean it or hey I know I wasn't the greatest husband in the world so we'll compare but I wasn't the worst or hey well you know I know I wasn't the greatest wife in the world but hey there were lots of wives worse than me I know lots of husbands that had it way worse than my husband did we try to compare as a way to kind of level the playing field right by minimizing or maybe we'll even go this far hey Jesus I really need some help with the hell thing I mean, I don't have an answer for that, but if you could help me with the hell thing, I've got life every day. I mean, hey, don't get all up in my business on my everyday life, but I'll trust you with the hell thing because I really don't have a good answer, you know, for that one. And, uh, and here's what I would say, all of that, it's so important. Listen, look at me, everybody. All of that, every bit of it is self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. And I'm able to diagnose self-righteousness. Do you know how? Because I'm an expert. 
I'm an expert in self-righteousness. And so are every single one of you. We're all experts in self-righteousness. And so the reason I'm able to diagnose it is because this is a part of my story. But thankfully, it's only a part of my story. The rest are, and the more important part of my story is that one day, the grace of God overwhelmed me. It bowled me over. And here's what I know because of the grace of God. That flicker of self-righteousness that's in you and that's in me is going to be snuffed out in the whirlwind that is God's justice when we stand face to face with Him. Because uh, it will not stand, it cannot. Because God's whirlwind of holy justice, in other words, when He is so pure and He is so high and He is so holy other than you and I that when we stand in his presence we will know every single one of us to the very core of our being that we have there is no reason for self-righteousness that the righteousness of God will overwhelm any feelings of self-righteousness that we have and the amazing thing about self-righteousness is that in the whirlwind that is his grace when we respond by faith, He sweeps us up, not into what we deserve, but He sweeps us up into His Son so that we can be brought near to Him even though every one of us in this room is guilty of treason against God. Every one of us. And here's the deal. If the mighty God did not come, I mean, if the mighty God did not step out of heaven and into humanity's story, we would still be helpless and hopeless. Every one of us in the room would still be completely dead in our sin. We'd still be in bondage and in shackles with no hope and no future. But that's not the message of Christmas that we know, is it? The message of Christmas is that God stepped in. It's so funny. Hundreds of years before the Christmas story, the prophet Zephaniah uh, said this. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. And this is the story of Christmas, right? That God came down and became a baby. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He stepped down when no one else would and no one else could. Because he's the only mighty God that there is. You're not going to find grace anywhere else because no one else has overcome sin and death in the way that our mighty God Jesus has. So where do you go from here? Just a couple of practical takeaways for today. Look, if storms have blown into your life in 2020, and there have been moments where you felt overwhelmed by that, reach up and take hold of mighty God. Let go of that caricature. It's not serving you well. And take hold of the Jesus that is. And I promise you this, if you will reach up and take hold of him, he will reach down at the same time and take hold of you. And do you know what he said? He said, I hold all the sheep in my hand. I'm the great shepherd. I hold them all. And nothing and no one can take my sheep out of my hand. I'm stronger than anyone because I'm the mighty God. So reach up and take a hold of the Jesus as he really is, right? I mean, maybe you've been running to the same substance for 30 years to assuage the pain in your heart, to keep it at bay, to self-medicate, right? But listen, Romans 6 says that you and I can be set 
free, that we don't have to live in bondage to that. And it's in Him. Maybe you've been running to relationships, sexual or otherwise, for fulfillment of some kind. But here's the reality about people, because here's what some, what some of us do. I did this, and I'll bet almost every one of you have done it too. There was a time in my life where I thought, if I just can meet the perfect woman, right? She'll solve all my problems and I'll wrap my life up in her and she'll wrap her life up in me and we'll always agree and there won't be any arguments and none of that, right? And I pinned all my hopes on that deal. And here's the problem with that. Listen to me, look at me, dial in. There's no such thing as the perfect girl. There's no such thing as the perfect guy. There's no such thing as another human being who is going to perfectly complete you, in the words of Tom Cruise, right? There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. But that's an idol that some of us cling to. That's a perspective that some of us want to hold on to because we desperately want that man or that woman to rescue us in a way that Jesus is meant to rescue us. It's only Jesus. You're not going to find it in that perfect guy or that perfect girl. And then finally, well, and by the way, here's what's so cool. If Jesus really is mighty God, that means he's way better than any caricature of Jesus that you or I could create in our minds. That means he's better than the way I think about him. And then one last thing. I already talked about self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness is like weeds. So maybe some of us need to begin to dig at the weeds of self-righteousness and judgment that we have in our own lives. And I'll tell you this, the only antidote to self-righteousness is God's grace, God's mercy. When you experience the grace and mercy of Jesus every single day, it eradicates the weeds of self-righteousness that tend to grow up in all of our lives and pollute our, the landscape of our lives, Right? So dig up the weeds and plant instead the seeds of God's grace in your hearts because Jesus is mighty God and because he's mighty God it means he's overcome sin and death just for you, just for me. And there is nothing. That is our greatest need. It is your greatest need. And he came to meet you in that hour, in the hour of your greatest need. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk a little bit to us about how we're going to respond. I'm going to call up the praise team. But here's what I want to say. So in a minute, we're going to sing a Christmas song. We're going to sing the song, and it's called, O Come All Ye Faithful. And it would be easy when you think about this song just to sing it in the spirit of kind of mindlessness. But what, what I want to remind you of is that faithfulness, the need to be men and women who are faithful to Jesus, is woven into the fabric of discipleship. In other words, at the heart of the call to discipleship is the call to be faithful. So as we sing this song about people coming to Jesus in faithfulness, I need to ask you a question. 
Where have you been unfaithful to mighty God in 2020? Where do you need to begin to say yes to Jesus as mighty God and quit saying no? In what area of your life do you need to be more faithful to Him? And then do that as you're singing and as we're thinking about the wonder and the awe of our Jesus together, especially at this time of year. In what ways do you need to be more responsive to Him? And then, um, as we're kind of responding as well, I just want to say a couple of ways maybe you could think about responding you know you're going to notice we have offering boxes the front and back of the room both online and in the room maybe we want to offer to God we want to respond to Jesus by offering the best of our treasures back to him right he gave them all to us in the first place maybe others of us can respond to mighty God by just being engaged in the worship and engaged with, in the actual words that we're singing. Maybe you can respond to Mighty God by pulling somebody aside, somebody in the worship team or somebody in, on staff or an elder aside and just saying, hey, would you just pray for me? I allowed the storms of 2020 to overwhelm and terrify me. And I just forgot. I just... I, I just forgot for a short period of time that Jesus was mighty God, even in the midst of that, that he was bigger than the wind and the waves and the darkness and all that. I just lost my mind. I just came unglued for a season. And I just need you to pray that, that I'd keep Jesus front and center as mighty God in my life. I don't know how you need to respond to Jesus, but I know this. You need to respond. You do. All of us do. We need to come to God in faithfulness. We may still have some families here in SEC at the church who still need to make their all-in commitment. You're welcome to do that today. And you can do that both at home and here in the room. Maybe some of us need to do that. I, again, I don't know. But just respond in faithfulness as we sing. Oh, come, all ye faithful. Would everybody stand? And let's just worship together.